happy Fem Friday. I am Nomiki Konst and welcome to the Nomiki Show. Uh, so yesterday was an interesting day. Uh, if you watch this show regularly, then you know we talk about Puerto Rico all the time. We talk about the island and the status of the island and what that means, especially in light of conversations in recent months surrounding DC and Puerto Rico statehood. Now, the reason why uh, we focus on this so much is because these two things are not the same. Let's just start off with the facts here. Uh, DC was never invaded <laughs> by the United States after the Spanish-American War. So 123 years ago, the island of Puerto Rico became a part of the continental United States, okay? And with that, uh, they were not granted citizenship until 19, I believe 17, when they were, uh, when Puerto Ricans were asked to uh, be part of the military and join uh, World War I. They later started to earn more, uh, more rights, but it has always been under the US government. Flash forward, we're doing a little brief overview here, not a whole history, so you don't have to go into my comments. Um, flash forward to recent years where there has been a debt crisis and a fiscal control board was put in place by Congress. And the fiscal control board currently oversees the island. It is an unelected body that has ties to hedge funds that are taking in, of course, the money from the debt. Why does that matter? because democracy. So this entire conversation about status is whether or not the people of Puerto Rico have a chance to exercise true democracy. They have, ele they have elections there, there's a legislature, there's a governor, all of these things, you know, the fundamentals of democracy are there, but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the fiscal oversight board can overrule any budgets that are set on the island by the elected bodies, even if, you know, those elected bodies are not, by the way, all left-leaning. It's a diverse island, politically diverse island. You have a right wing. They're literally right now debating whether or not to ban conversion therapy. And the statehood party is against banning conversion therapy. These are real conversations happening right now. So for folks, Democrats, well-meaning Democrats, and, and maybe even some progressives who think that if the island of Puerto Rico becomes a state if we on the mainland determine whether or not they should be a state, then we'll suddenly get two Democratic senators uh, and maybe a few Congress members as well, Democratic Congress members. But there is no validity to that. There is no truth to that. Uh, even the governor himself said Puerto Rico would become a swing state and he is for statehood. Uh, the current resident commissioner who sits in Congress right now was a pro-Trump <laughs> Republican, uh, she campaigned on Latinos for Trump for Donald Trump. And she said just last week that if the island were to become a state, which she wants, she's the author of the statehood bill right now, uh, then that doesn't mean that the debt would be eliminated. So the bondholders would still get their money. So what is the point? Well, yesterday, uh, representatives uh, Nidia Velasquez and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as well as Senator Bob Menendez, presented a piece of legislation, an alternate bill, 
And the bill is uh, a bill to, it, it, it was actually introduced a couple of years ago as well, or last year, I believe, uh, but they have reintroduced it and it's called the Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act. And it would create a binding, a binding process that's important that obligates Congress to act on the will of the Puerto Rican people and quote, respect the rights of a minority in Puerto Rico to be able to participate in broad, democratic, and transparent, inclusive effort. That is what uh, Representative Velasquez said, who is from the island of Puerto Rico, and of course, uh, so are uh, the other co-authors of the bill. So what does that mean? Well, that essentially means more democracy. It means, unlike the statehood bill, which is basically using um, information that is not accurate, they they quote, uh, I heard these things last week, which was amazing. They, they are saying that in previous non-binding plebiscites, uh, where the questions have been dif different every single time, the statehooders uh, who are presenting the statehood bill, not all statehooders, by the way, are presenting the statehood bill, but the statehooders that are, are quoting that there was a uh, plebiscite in uh, November of 2020, in which the questions were, are you for statehood or are you against statehood? And they won by 53% of a low turnout election because the other parties usually do not want to take part. And so the numbers are not quite accurate. Then they also quote that 97% of the island is for statehood. Well, that was based on another vote a few years ago in which the turnout, and let me get this number if, if, if it's accurate here, 97%, right? That's the number they say of, of Puerto Ricans are for statehood. And that was based on a 2017 plebiscite in which 23% of the island voted. And that is because opposition parties boycotted the vote because they knew it was not a fair election and they were non-binding on top of it. So uh, th that is the basis of what the statehooders have been saying uh, when they come to the U.S. They've spent hundreds of millions of dollars in lobbying uh, to, to get Democratic lawmakers on board. They've uh, spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in misinformation campaigns. And yesterday, the... I think they're probably caught by surprise to see that over 80 members of Congress and senators, bipartisan, have signed on to the Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act. And what the Self-Determination Act presents is it would create a process uh, like a convention where all parties, all parties, lowercase p, would be at the convention elected and they would be able to decide, debate what the process for self-determination would be. It is like a, you know, it is a convention. Um, and, you know, this is this is this is transformational because this is what I, you know, we as United States advocate for uh, when there's decolonization all over the world. Yet with our own colony, uh, it's been, you know, folks have been stuck. So, you know, this is going to be a long process. Uh, we covered this yesterday. We had Federico de Jesus on, who is, uh, he, he's, he works in Washington. Uh, he's worked for President Obama uh, and for uh, Senator Reid, I believe, as well. And uh, he's from the island of Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico. And so he's, you know, very familiar with this this circumstance, as anybody is on the island. Um, so he, he, he went through the process of what it would mean once this bill is voted on. And essentially it would go to a set of hearings under the Land Services Committee. I think that's the proper uh, Water and Land Services Committee, I believe, uh, which is chaired by Raul Grijalva from Tucson, Arizona, from Southern Arizona. And, uh, and then the hearings would take place over these two bills.
So the status convention, if this bill was was passed, if if you know it could be earmarked and lot, there were lots of different things could be added to the bill as well, um, or removed. But uh, if it is passed, then what happens is there would be a status convention made up of delegates elected by Puerto Rican voters. The delegates would be responsible for coming up with these long term solutions for the island's territorial status. And some of those solutions are are that presented are, of course, statehood, independence, uh, free association. And there are other options as well that go beyond the territorial arrangement to still have a you know, relationship with the United States, but have their own uh, you know, <laughs> democracy, for instance. Um, so, you know, it, it, as always, as we say on the show, this is very complicated. Um, but as folks on the mainland, for those of you on the mainland watching this who are learning about this, I'm a bigger big, big believer of more democracy, and this is a very lowercase d democratic bill. And bringing it to the people of the island to decide to self-determine who they are, not forcing a minority or a majority of the island uh, for Congress to, to enforce on them. You know, keep in mind, this has been a colony uh, for over 400 years, I believe, or 300, including Spain. So, uh, and one more thing just to keep in mind, you know, Puerto Ricans have their own identity and they say this over and over. Every single person I've ever interviewed uh, reinforces it. Their government is conducted in Spanish. 30% of the island speaks Spanish or speaks English. Uh, they have their own uh, team at the Olympics, right? There is an identity. It is not similar as Federico said yesterday to Hawaii, which was a kingdom in which uh, white Americans had essentially invaded the island um, and much of the culture had been stripped, murdered. Uh, so it was in a completely different state, but also a very important conversation as well. You can't, we can't sit here and say they're all the same. Uh, DC, part of the mainland is, uh, it, as we saw with the insurrection, they were, they were facing all these different obstacles because they couldn't just call in the National Guard on their own. They had to go through the president. So um, the island of Puerto Rico has been, you know, debating and discussing this for years. Uh, it'd be amazing to see this moment where, you know, maybe the tide has shifted. Maybe there are bigger conversations because of the debt crisis, because of Maria, because of the earthquakes last year and, and just uh, the poverty level on the island of Puerto Rico, which is three times poorer than Mississippi, the poorest state in the union. So go check out uh, this act. It's it's uh, we're going to be watching it closely. Uh, if you see any of your lawmakers on signed on to the statehood bill and you're frustrated, you know, they, they should probably hear from you. I, I, I think that's um, that's fair to say. And uh, one more programming note is I, I, I think we're going to. I'm going to invite a couple people on to debate this. Uh, I, I, I have been called out for not having statehooders on, and I hear you, but I clearly have a position now. Uh, but I, I will welcome somebody on soon to debate. Uh, you know, two people who are very familiar with the subject, uh, who are Puerto Rican and who have been lobbying for this for quite a, both sides for a long time and advocating for it for a very long time. So I'm hoping uh, very soon we'll have two people on to debate it. It'll be well worth the watch um, and I'm looking forward to it. And with that, uh, we will be right back. We have a great show today. Uh, we're going to be talking about this thing called the Unpack. What? 
What does that mean? Okay, well, you're going to learn all about it. We have Shauna Gallagher here. She's the executive director of the Unpack, and Joseline Garcia is the organizing director of the Unpack. Uh, they will be on right after this break. And then later, stick around because we have Jamie Peck and Francesca Fiorentini. It is Femme Friday. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. All right. Uh, PACs. You know, I love to talk about money and politics. <laughs> love to talk about PACs. Um, I'm fascinated by this because there is a new PAC out whose goal is to defeat all PACs, possibly. I think that's that's the right way of saying it. Uh, Shauna Gallagher is the executive director of the Unpack, and Joseline Garcia is the organizing director of the Unpack. Hello, ladies. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, going? thank you for having us. <laughs> I'm loving the energy already. All right. So, um, yeah, just chime in. If you talk over each other, it's fine. It's more fun. Um, so who wants to, to, to take the lead and, and say where'd the idea come from? Go for it, Shana. If you insist. So the idea came from an amalgamation of things, including my own student organizing history. I was an organizer all four years that I was in school doing fossil fuel divestment organizing with a lot of the founders of Sunrise. That was the thing back then. And I learned the hard way that we're not going to pass meaningful climate policy until we pass meaningful democracy reform because the fossil fuel lobby has blocked that sort of policy for our entire lifetime. And I actually never thought I would work in campaigns because our campaign finance system is so broken but I got recruited to the Better for Texas campaign and then worked on the Bernie campaign with Jocelyn and have run really big student organizing programs since then. And so I really believe in empowering young people to be a part of our political process. But I also believe that we actually need to address the root problem of all of the issues that young people care about if we're going to be able to take action on any of them. Those problems being climate change, access to an affordable education, universal health care, gun violence, you name it. And so for me, it's been a long time coming. And then Jocelyn and I had the great fortune of working together on the Bernie campaign. I was the national student organizing director. She was the California and New York student organizing director. And we came back together after the campaign and said, how can we continue the work we started? How can we continue empowering young people to be a part of our political process? Because not enough people are doing organizing, let alone youth organizing. And we decided that the best way to make the bold visionary policies that we fought for on the campaign a political reality, because right now they're not, unfortunately, is to take action right now at this historic opportunity to pass the For the People Act and ensure that young people are a part of the unprecedented advocacy it's going to take. Nothing worth happening happens without students and young people involved. So that's why we decided to jump in. And yeah, I'll pass it over to you, Josh, if there's anything you want to add. Yeah, thank you, Shana. Um, so my story is a little bit different where I didn't really think about democracy reform until in the recent years. I didn't realize it was a thing. And I think a lot of young people and the public in general is in a similar position where we know that things aren't working, right? But we don't, like a tangible and realistic solution is hardly ever brought to our attention. And that's also not by accident. And so I got involved in organizing as well as a student. I was in high school and I got involved because I was just witnessing a lot of really awful things happen to people that I care about in my communities. And it didn't make sense to me as to why are these things surrounding the criminal justice system, surrounding immigration, surrounding our education are impacting 
these really good people in this way. And so I got involved in organizing because my peers told me that I, as a young Latina, actually have the power and the means to create this change so I can see these, these experiences stop, right? And so they trained me, they gave me the tools, and I started getting involved in college. And similar to Shana, I did not think I was going to work for a candidate either. I did a lot of issue organizing, but I got involved with Senator Sander because he was a candidate who, you know, believed in the power of students and young people and actually invested in a program which had never been seen before. And um, when I was uh, a student, I was involved in the United States Student Association, which is the oldest student organization in the country. And soon after, I became the president of the organization where I worked much where I worked much closely with the senator. And so over these past 10 years that I've started organizing and I'm 26, so it hasn't been, you know, that long of my lifetime. You know, I've lobbied. A good decade to organize if you're going to do it. This was the decade. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, what I'm trying to say is that, like, I've introduced policy. I've lobbied. I've fundraised. I have marched. I've gotten arrested at the Hill. You know, I've worked on electoral campaigns. And sometimes we win. But many times we lose. And the scary part of the times where we lose these campaigns is that people are still going to continue hurting. They're going to continue to be in pain. And that's young people, but also their loved ones. And so we're in a position where losing and failure is just really not an option. And the connecting issue is having to reform our democracy. And for the first time in a very long time, we're in a position where we can get this bill actually passed. And, you know, the Democrats are in control. So tell us about the bill. Um, what is this bill and and like where does it stand right now? So glad you asked. So I usually describe it as a list of things that any country that calls itself a democracy should already have. But of course, America doesn't. And broadly, it would get big money out of politics and make it easier for people to vote. And the ways that it would make it easier for people to vote is by mandating same day and automatic voter registration in all 50 states, reenfranchisement of all felons in all 50 states. Anyone can vote by mail whenever they want to in all 50 states and increasing polling locations on college campuses and in communities of color and on indigenous reservations, making it easier to vote, expanding the electorate. The bulk of it would get big money out of politics and the main ways that it would do that reduce the role, I should say. The main way they would do that would be to overturn Citizens United, ban gerrymandering in all 50 states, um, introduce public financing of elections so that you don't need to be a millionaire or know a bunch of millionaires to run for office and win, and just really break the stranglehold that corporations and the ultra-wealthy have over our Congress, because right now the the system is broken such that both parties, both parties operate within mm-hmm. a system of legalized corruption and they are incentivized to spend their time fundraising and not to spend their time doing things that are beneficial for their constituents. There's a study that I can share uh, with your viewers. It's a Harvard Business School study that is actually shows there's a cor- zero correlation between a member of Congress doing things that are good for their constituents and winning re-election. Zero correlation. The only thing that matters is how much money they raise. And we know that members of Congress spend up to 80% of their time dialing for dollars and fundraising. And Mm -hmm. that is why the system's broken. They're not out there listening to their constituents, especially not listening to our generation and our needs. So we're not representing our government. This bill, we think, is the closest thing to a silver bullet that we've seen in our lifetime that would make our democracy 
actually functional and accountable. And so we're really committed to seeing it through. Can the Democrats deliver it? We're not sure, but we're going to try to make sure that we hold them accountable and um, that they actually pass something that would reduce their own power as well as that of the Republican Party to entrench themselves. So who's, um, Jocelyn, who's the author of the bill? Who's sponsoring it? Who's, where, where does it go? Yeah, so uh, so it was actually introduced a couple years back, back in 2019. That was the, the version event and almost the same similar version of it has been reintroduced this time. And it's um, by Representative John Sarbanes, who's um, a good friend of ours as well that we've been working closely with. Um, And in the House, actually, it passed earlier this month and it got all co-sponsorships from the Democrats. And then um, here over on the Senate side, it was actually introduced on Wednesday. And so the Democrats at the moment are rallying up trying to get as many co-sponsors as possible. Who, who introduced it on the Senate side? Merkley. Uh, yeah, there is we it, go. Who is it? Senator Merkley, Oregon. Senator Merkley, okay, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so, I mean, but then the reality here, right, like, because these bills have been presented before and there have been, like, major conversations about campaign finance reform in the Democratic Party, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I love hearing Democrats say, well, we changed our business model meaning uh, the leadership of the Democratic Party. We changed our business model to, to rely heavily on lobbyists because we had to keep up with the Republicans and all the money. And then when they're presented with an opportunity to not be beholden to that money, uh, for both parties to not be beholden, they're like, whoa, 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 wait, hang on a second. And they reveal themselves, not not all of them, I'm saying, but just a, a, a crew of Democrats who reveal themselves. So what is those who are not supporting this bill or who have yet to sign on, um, what is the pushback? What is the pushback from the Democrats who mm-hmm. haven't signed on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had, so we have 60 organizers who we employ. We are hoping to get up to 100, but we have 60 students and young people across the country who are mobilizing their communities and their schools around this legislation. And we meet with them every week, and we had a member of Congress, um, a former member of Congress, come join us at our weekly call last week, and he was telling stories about how basically every waking hour he spent while he was on the Hill fundraising and that when he got into office, he was told, you are not a legislator, you're a fundraiser. And they had people waiting for him in the car between meetings. He would always have a driver Mm -hmm. so that he could keep fundraising, right? And so we spoke with him and he was sharing that this is something that members of Congress are comfortable with. This is the system, right? And Mm -hmm. they know that right now in order to maintain their power in order to keep their jobs which is an instinct that we're all motivated by that they need to keep fundraising and that the system and the status quo right now has served them such that they attain power they're in power they feel like they're doing the right committee positions i mean even once they get into washington it's like you get good spots if you play ball with the with the democrats right Right. And playing ball usually means you're a good fundraiser as well. So the system is very profoundly broken. Again, it turns even good people in most cases into folks who are just obsessed with fundraising because that is how the incentive systems are designed at this point. And so, you know, people are scared of change. And that's, I think, where the pushback is coming from. People are not sure what the new democracy will look like when 
power dramatically shifts right. to people, right? And it's actually functioning for working people and young people and people of color, not just for corporations and the ultra wealthy. So it's going to be a big, a big change. It could fundamentally transform the way our democracy works. Um, and we really think that that is absolutely necessary and existential. And that's why we need to get it done. But um, it's definitely taking some of our more moderate friends in the Senate a little bit longer to, to sign on. If I might add, you know, one part is a co-sponsorship, but another barrier to actually getting the bill passed, at least on the Senate side, is, you know, the filibuster um, concept. And so, you know, with some Democrats, you know, they've told us and they've told our organizers that they will co-sponsor the legislation. And what we are then following up with, okay, are you willing to do everything in your power to actually means like it will pass? And so I I think it's a two-pronged um, a concept that we're, we're dealing with. It's yes, do you support the bill, but are you actually going to ensure that it passes? That's like, that's a great filibuster. Yeah. Right. That's a great point. I mean, this is, uh, it's really easy to sign on to, to popular yeah. bills uh, to show up, you know, <laughs> actually do the work. Yeah. So, are you willing to show up? <laughs> are you like, exactly. So in, in terms of the organizing structure, um, where are you targeting the organizing? Like which, which geographically where are you targeting? Yeah, so we have tier one and tier two states. Our tier one states are Arizona and West Virginia because- Oh, why is that? Yeah, why could that be? As Jocelyn (laughs) just mentioned, there is a profoundly anti-democratic relic of white supremacy called the filibuster, which remains around. And uh, there are two members of the Congress who are Democratic senators who have not yet um, said that they are in support of reforming the filibuster. Not yet, but we are going to help them see the light and we look forward to working with them to overcome the obstacles that are in the path of the For the People Act passing because our future hangs in the balance. And then our tier two states are conservative Republican members of Congress who we deem more movable. So these are people like Pat Toomey, who is retiring and hopefully should be concerned about his legacy. Same with Rob Portman in Ohio. These are places like North Carolina and even Florida, where there are election campaigns coming up in 2022, and those folks only won by a pretty small margin, and young people really could be the margin of victory. So Mm -hmm. we are focusing in states that are strategic to either overcoming the filibuster or there is a world in which some Republicans sign on to this, especially a Lisa Murkowski or a Susan Collins. And so those are our tier two states. That said, we really want to, in the same way that the Bernie campaign had, the Students for Bernie program had a presence in all 50 states, we really want to have a presence in all 50 states. We want to be reaching out to any and all young people who agree big money in politics is bad, democracy is good, and we want to be generating a nationwide, the never used word, movement of young people who understand that we're told that the divisions in this country are left versus right. Um, We're told that things are fine and maybe Joe Biden's in office now and we should all just go back to how things were. But actually the divisions in this country are top versus bottom. And Mm -hmm. we know that this is ultimately a matter of of generational warfare. I mean, we feel like our, our generation is being completely ignored by our current government. We are not being represented. The compounding crises we're facing of even just climate change and the student debt crisis, to name two of many, are absolutely crippling and young people are not able to live their fullest lives and, and be, be flourishing in the way that we want them to. And so we really want to make sure that our members of Congress understand that on both sides of the aisle. They risk losing an entire generation of young voters forever, potentially, if they mm-hmm. do not deliver right now, especially Democrats, when they have the power to do so. 
Why, why is it framed through the lens of just young people? I mean, this is just a, an organizing question. Um, mm-hmm. You know, have, have you like reached out to labor, for instance, um, had those kinds of relationships built? Because there's been recent mm-hmm. um, criticism of progressive groups for mm. being separate from labor recently. Like there's been some articles about that. Um, mm-hmm. I think from where Shane and I were coming from, and as she mentioned, when we were coming up with Unpack, we were coming from a position that we are two people that started off with student organizing and mm-hmm. also built a historical student and young person program and an electoral campaign, perhaps the largest and most effective youth and student operation like in the history of electoral politics. And so we wanted to be very intentional, not just on the issue that we were organizing with, but not having to reinvent the wheel. Like these are, we had 2000 trained student leaders across the country in that program who already have the skills and know how to do this work. And so we didn't want to reinvent the wheel, but rather build upon what we had started and continue the work um, that we started about a year ago and, you know, unfortunately ended. And so we're now continuing it and building upon it in a different capacity. And so I would say that's, it's not so much that there was no intention to reach out to labor. It's more so that this is what we wanted to build upon and ensure that these young people continue to have an investment and were empowered to create the change that, you know, they saw fit. Mm-hmm. And if I may add, part of the reason why we're focusing so specifically on young people as well is because there's already a lot of momentum around this legislation, which is great. Uh, But that momentum is not coming from young people. And again, Mm -hmm. as Jocelyn was mentioning, she didn't think about democracy reform for a long time. I had to learn the hard way to think about democracy reform. Most young people do not connect the dots between the issues that they care about and the need to fix our very broken democracy and the opportunity to do that right now, which is a really Mm -hmm. once in a lifetime, all hands on deck moment. And so there are lots of national coalitions and hundreds and hundreds of groups that are organizing around this specific bill. But we looked across the space and we saw mm-hmm. really none of them that mm-hmm. were activating young people on this issue. And we, again, feel like nothing worth doing is going to happen without young people. We're the best organizers. If this is going to have the best chance of winning, we absolutely need to be there. And by we, I mean our generation. Young people absolutely need to yeah. have a seat at the table. And hopefully we can be the straw that breaks the camel's back when it comes to reforming the filibuster and getting this done. Um, how is the PAC structured? What, like, is it, is it all, is all organizing? Are you doing like, ah, what, what are the, what are the goals specifically? Yeah. Yes. Go ahead, Josh. For sure. So as Shana mentioned, we have 60 organizers and these are student organizers that are being paid $15 an hour. And when we were budgeting, we were very intentional of ensuring that was taking place. Um, And a lot, a big portion to that is that oftentimes in these movements that rely on volunteers, we don't find working class people, let alone young people and black and brown students, um, participating as much as they would want to, even though the issues are directly impacting them. And that's because they don't often have the capacity to do volunteer work. And so that's one big reason why we wanted to ensure that our organizers and our students were getting paid. So we have the student organizers and they, uh, as mentioned, as Shana mentioned, they are based 
and organizing their peers on their college campuses and statewide on key priority states. A lot of the tactics that they are using are both an educational aspect and also pressure. So, you know, in terms of pressure, they're pressuring their senators, right? And they are recruiting and training their peers to be able to scale up those tactics. At the moment, a lot of that has included calling their senators, emailing them, doing doing social media blasts. And at the moment, they're organizing to try to personally convene with their senator to ask them directly if they will co-sponsor this legislation and ensure they do everything possible to get it passed. And on the education side, as Shana mentioned, a lot of people don't connect the dots with democracy reform. And so students are doing class presentations. They're also speaking to various student organizations on their campus and across the state to really bring about that education. Um, And again, as we mentioned, people know that things are not working but it's very difficult to have the the resources to understand what is the root problem and a feasible and realistic solution to it. So we are reaching out to their peers to ensure that they are aware of this. And we're very confident that young people will support this legislation. It's just really about ensuring that they are aware that this actually exists and empowering them with the tools and the skills to do something about it. Um, And how do you guys fund yourselves? Where, Where does the money come from? you know, the ultimate question everybody asks. <laughs> yes, exactly. We, again, there's a lot of momentum around this legislation. So we were very much in the right place at the right time. We have institutional partners who are other organizations that mobilize around democracy reform. Mm-hmm. And they have been our initial major donors. We have had some, um, some very generous individuals who've also made contributions at a uh, non a non-zero sum um and then we have we do have a small dollar fundraising program that we are hoping to ramp up soon it hasn't been our major focus yet but ultimately of course what we want to do is empower small donors and any everyday working person especially young people who at best can usually donate you know five dollars to a candidate that they believe in to understand that um those those contributions do matter and that they will matter a lot more when we pass something like the For the People Act, which really incentivizes small dollar donations through that public financing system that I mentioned. So we believe in the small donor model. Um, We have yet to build that up in a really big way, but we are hoping that ultimately that's what we will be able to rely on. Um, Just to remind everybody, what's what's the name of the bill and uh, where it stands in the Senate, what the timeline on that is? Yeah, so it's called the For the People Act. Also, S1 or HR1 is the version that passed the House. Mm-hmm. It was introduced earlier this week, as Jocelyn mentioned. It, the, the next sort of schedule for the bill is that there's a hearing happening on the bill in the Senate on March 24th. And then debate and a potential first vo- vote is expected in mid-April. Fantastic. All right. Uh, anything else you guys want to share with the audience? So they can learn more, help out, volunteer, whatever. For any young person watching, we want you to know that there are all these tropes about young people being apathetic and lazy, and that's why they don't vote. It's absolutely not mm-hmm. true. We know young people don't vote because they are systematically disenfranchised, and it doesn't need to be that way. This legislation is existential for our generation having a future to look forward to, so definitely please join us. You can sign up at un-pack.org. And we would love to organize with you. Again, we want to work with any young person who agrees big money in politics is bad, democracy is good, and wants to have a brighter future to look forward to. So we look forward to organizing with you. Jocelyn, final thoughts? Ditto. 
Did it you know. <laughs> Easy <laughs> enough. All right. Shayna Gallagher, Jocelyn Garcia, thank you for joining us. Go check out Unpack. We had it up on the screen. We'll put it in the uh, information section as well. Thank you, guys. Thank you, gals. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> right. Bye. Bye. Uh, we will be right back with our amazing panel. But first, I want to give a shout out uh, to Bleep Blomp Ben on Twitch for the raid. He just uh, sent over a bunch of Femme Friday raiders. Thank you very much. All right. We'll be right back after this break. All right, guys, uh, you've heard me talk about Sunset Lake CBD because I love it. <laughs> I just got my tincture in the mail and I doubled, tripled my dosage. It's a thousand milligrams now. And it knocked me out last night. It was the deepest, most lovely sleep, uh, especially since I had to get up super early this morning. Uh, not as early as Dorsey though. So Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer owned company that ships craft CBD products directly to you from their farm to your door. There's no middleman, uh, better, you know, footprint, carbon footprint. Sunset Lake CBD has something for everyone, including those tinctures, gummies, salves, and coffee designed to help with stiffness, aches, and pains. Uh, there's also new fudge out. Oh my God, it was delicious. That went by really fast. I don't know if I should do that one again, but <laughs> everything else I love because fudge, mm, I'm trying to be a little lighter on, yeah. Um, it was originally a farm. They, uh, they, they are farming their CBD products from an old uh, Ben and Jerry's farm and they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp. Uh, customers, when they support Sunset Lake CBD, they support sustainable agriculture that enhances rural communities and economies and creates meaningful employment in those communities. And they pay their workers a $15 minimum wage and the employees own the majority of the company as well. On top of all that, they support, they do advertising with independent media like our show, The Nomi Key Show, David Pakman's show, and of course, The Majority Report. Um, so like I said, I just got some more tincture. I uh, upped the dose quite a bit. I <laughs> I didn't really expect that. <laughs> I wasn't really paying attention, uh, but I'm, I'm really loving the tincture. It's, it's like definitely chilled me out uh, in ways that I didn't expect. Uh, Dorsey, I know you use the product as well. What, what, what are you doing right now with your CBD? What's I, your CBD routine? I'm sitting in the other room producing this show and uh, my partner just peeked her head uh, through the door and showed me that we just got our delivery today. So <laughs> I um, your delivery? Restocked, restocked with tincture and with gummies. So yeah, it was getting pretty... Uh, Gummies stressed out there because like, I was like, when is this going to come? I don't know. I know. I got, I got hooked on it too. I was like, oh, I had the tincture every night. And then I ran out. I'm like, oh, I had no idea. Yeah. It's a great bedtime routine for me. I have some tea and I have some tincture and, you know, it's, it's better than popping some, some, you know, pain relievers or whatever and, and trying to deal with it that way. So really happy with, with uh, Sunset Lake. And also, you know, it, I, I, purchased after hearing commercial on majority report, of course. And, you know, I've tried a bunch of, of CBD before in the past and it's just been, you know, it's, eh, you know, I, I yeah. can't really tell, but with this stuff, I can tell that it's like relaxing me and, you know, I smoke the real stuff and, you know, it's like, I can tell when I'm getting the feeling that I want to, I want to feel with, with the smoking, but not like, you know, I don't want to be high necessarily. I'm just right. nice and relaxed. So anyway, it's, it's great. And it's nice to, to have like a, an American like farm up North. That's uh you know, doing, doing good things with their workers. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, we should we should gift all of the staffers that Biden, the Biden administration shut out for smoking uh, the real stuff with some CBD product. If maybe yeah, they just if, needed to loosen up a little bit. <laughs> if you guys are listening, seriously, you know. <laughs> If, if Check it out. Maintain, yeah, this is a good way. Actually, Sunset Lake CBD should do an ad for Biden and say, "Listen, you don't always have to be high." <laughs> All right, totally. guys. You you can yeah exactly you can go check out um you can get a discount they have a promo code uh for 20 percent discount off of your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com use the promo code nomi n-o-m-i 20 percent off your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com we will be right back with francesca fiorentini and jamie peck Show. I'm laughing because I'm reading the chat. <laughs> and Francesca Fiorentini said, I muted myself because I read instructions. <laughs> I, I never read instructions. I'm trying to get better. I'm, I'm impressed. Nobody reads the instructions on the show, clearly. No. What's going on? Can we be What's unmuted now? Yes, Jamie, you're free. <laughs> you're free. <laughs> Let's <him> be free. <laughs> I've been yelled at before. <laughs> All right. Francesca Fiorentini is, of course, the host of the Bituation Room podcast, New Time and News Broke on Al Jazeera. And Jamie Peck is the co-host of the Antifada podcast. Everyone knows you guys. It's, I don't even know why I have to introduce you, but, you know, it's important. Um, something going on with my hair. It's like there's like a big I didn't brush my hair today. It's like a knot. It's just it's volume. Chalk it up. Uh, to volume. I keep going like this. You know, it's it's funny because like I, I don't know if you, since it's fun Friday, might as well just lean in on this. Um, if you ever have like a really good hair day, like yesterday I had my hair, I did a, a news hit. And so someone did my hair for me and I just didn't want to brush it after that. So I'm trying to keep it together. Mm. It's not working. All right, let's get serious here. Um, I want to start off with uh, the, the most important news this week. The most shocking, jarring news this week is of course uh, the attacks that we woke up to a few days ago um, that occurred in Atlanta. Uh, a misogynistic madman, a uh, murderer, of course, targeting uh, Asian women in particular, but but the Asian community, um, and using the excuse of he had sexual problems, and of course that being reinforced through the sheriff's department. But I wanted, I, I, I really wanted to have a conversation in this space because I think many people are learning, um, and they should be learning, about how deep-rooted this is. I was listening to a report yesterday uh, in, with the, the the there's a lawmaker um, I think it's Representative Wynn in in Georgia who was talking about how difficult it is how difficult it has been for her to get attention um, for reform around what designates a hate crime and like it's just fallen on deaf ears for for mm. whatever reason uh, Francesca I know you've been you know very you've been speaking out quite a bit about this um, over the last few days. Misogyny, racism, racism with misogyny goes hand in hand. I mean, this this must be incredibly traumatizing for you in particular, right? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm Chinese. I'm half Chinese. I got a lot of Asian elders in my life and my loved ones. And uh, I was out walking the other day and I saw a couple of uh, Asian elders walking with giant sticks. And let me tell you, I've seen them before. They they didn't wear, they didn't used to have giant sticks, but they are ready for action. So don't F with them because they will F with you. Um, So yeah, I, in terms of the hate crime thing, it's, it's a bigger issue that I'm not qualified, I think, to speak properly on. But I think that in this country, we have an incredibly narrow definition of what a hate crime is. Um, And I think it speaks to a larger problem about our criminal justice system generally, and obviously gun violence broadly, Um, you know, so like, you know, um, there's just a lot of issues that are a lot of things that are not classified as hate crimes or, and, and like, what's the difference? I mean, really mm-hmm. within a system of white supremacy within racist policing, like it's all a giant hate crime. So, I mean, in the hate crime language, I feel like was developed in like the eighties and nineties. Like we are way beyond that now. Yeah. And it's so much more of a systemic issue, which is sort of what I really keep on coming back to and looking at some of the Asian led organizations that do incredible, like anti, gentrification work like housing work homelessness work all this great stuff and they don't see these instances as separate from broader struggles against policing for justice um and for also like a black lives matter movement which i think is so important right now so yeah that lots of thoughts on that it's interesting because um you know, the response in New York, uh, in particular, Jamie, you live in New York, was to beef up the police, like bring in the police, the police who just really understood the issue so well when they got up and spoke. Oh my God. Yeah, um, I actually did a stream last night with my friend, uh, Rachel Oyster Kim, who is an Asian woman as well as a sex worker and an activist around sex workers' rights and abolition. And we went, we really dug into a lot of the reasons why um, our current front runner for mayor, Andrew Yang, is wrong when he says the answer to anti-Asian violence is to put more cops in the subways. I mean, just recently, an Asian woman died trying to climb out the window when the cops raided the massage parlor where she worked in Queens. Um, So if you think about the ways that these uh, kinds of hateful acts intersect with misogyny, anti-Asian racism and whorephobia around sex workers, because whether or not these women actually were sex workers, um, Asian women working in massage parlors are associated with sex workers. Um, You can see very quickly that the racist, uh, misogynistic, rapey cops are maybe not the best thing to throw at this problem. It's also the same week that I'm I'm thinking about, you know, the woman, Sarah Everard, who was allegedly murdered. I mean, the, the, the case hasn't been closed. Right. But like, you know, a police officer is charged with her murder in the UK, in London. And the answer there has been, oh, we got this pilot program. We're going to throw a bunch of cops, plainclothes cops in nightclubs to make sure that women are safe, like cool cool plan, bro. I'm sure that's going to work out real well. Like it's, it's mind boggling. And, and, it, and it, there need to be more women as someone who's like, ultimately we need to dismantle these structures. I'm also like, I just also need to see more women in positions making these decisions. Yeah. Andrew Yang's a horrible example of how representation is not actually always a good thing. This is a guy who wrote an op-ed that was like, uh, 
look, Asians, we just need to prove our Americanness to the world, to this country. Just, you know, go out there with your, you know, your flags and your red, white, and blue and let everyone know that they shouldn't be afraid of you. And it's just like, no, F you forever if that's your response. I <laughs> ahead, said it last night and I'll say it again. I am a police abolitionist, except for the Yang gang. <laughs> they are a dangerous gang. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> they must be stopped. Oh my God. They come for you. I have all these comments, people saying, we love your show, but like, we just don't see the, you haven't given us the evidence against Andrew Yang yet. I'm like, what, what more evidence do you want than this? <laughs> uh, honestly, he's not a socialist guy. He's not, if he could run his campaign off of crypto, he would. And who knows where that money would be coming from. My no, God. He's, all right. he's the best kind of libertarian, the kind that loves cops. Yes, exactly. <laughs> God. He's like defund the police and then replace it with Brock Pierce and his crypto gang. I don't know whatever his, his strategy He's going to outsource police work. It'll be a whole, which I'm at this point, I'm like, might as well try it. Yeah, because it'll like, fail and then we won't have it. <laughs> Great idea. No, it's just going to be a bunch of those like killer dog robots from yes. the last season of Black Mirror with like a big Google logo on the side. That's going to be great. <laughs> exactly but you know what? They're not, they are not good at opening doors. So we got that <laughs> on them. <laughs> yes. Well, the problem is, is they'll shoot through the door. That's that's the, the bigger issue. All right. So I, I, I want to bring up um, Representative Jimmy Go Gomez from California Uh has introduced a resolution to expel Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, from Congress over her repeated in, in, quote in, her repeated endorsements of sedition, domestic terrorism, and political violence. But okay, makes sense, right? Like, why not? Why is this controversial? I don't understand. But Nancy Pelosi is like, oh, that's his view. We we mm -hmm. don't feel that. We don't feel that way. They, they got and she, they went into your office, stole oh. your laptop. Oh, you that missed, rules. They missed you by like a half a second. Remember, remember Nancy, <laughs> remember that video? Nancy, yeah. oh where God. are like, you? I love that so much. No, this is literally the last scene, uh, spoiler alert, in the purge election year <laughs> when the Hillary Clinton character like they, her whole family was murdered. The the fascists they tried to kidnap her. They tried to murder her multiple times. They almost murdered her again, like on a stage in a weird like church place. And finally, like the cool black anarchists rescue her, which they probably shouldn't have done. But she just she goes up to the fascist guy, like the the new founding fathers, real uh real Josh Hawley energy, and, and she goes, <laughs> "I'm gonna beat you so bad in November." That's exactly what this no, is. It's no. like, excuse me, I'm going to go create a, uh, we're going to have a process that we're going to talk about it. This is exactly what this is. Just like civility, you know, like as <laughs> you're being choked. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Leon like cops, that's what they need. She needs a cop to stand up to him. That's, I don't know. I mean, this is ridiculous. Well, she should call her friend cop Mala. No, um, like there are people who say, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't be so hard on these right-wing insurrectionists because then they're going to use the same stuff on the radical left. Um, there's no ombudsman out there making sure <laughs> that the right and the left get treated the same. Like, there's no one in the history of this country saying, oh, we need to be fair to the to the communists who want to overthrow this country and treat them exactly the same as, also, uh, as the people on the late. far right. Right. Like, too late for treating like leftists the way 
that you like that that's been going on dude there's there's fbi files about the raging grannies a group yeah. of singing pacifist grannies that go out to anti-war demonstrations like what have we been doing pages with long. The FBI? they follow them to like mcdonald's i mean have, i've i've talked to folks who've like found their family members fbi files and the what they depict is like, she went to the nail salon today. Well, she went and walked the, nothing, nothing. It's unreal. Like the FBI agent who has been assigned to Noam Chomsky since the sixties <laughs> just makes his, makes his fourth visit of the day to Panera bread. <laughs> it's exactly it. That dude's um, going to publish a memoir when Chomsky finally eventually does die. Although I can't even think about that and I'm going to hate it and I'm going to troll someone knock on some wood please everybody (laughs) knock on wood i have no wood around me no i'm i've got tons of wood good 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 um all right so this is this is this is very strange to me because i don't know why we keep having to vote on this but uh once again congress voted on the violence against women act uh, women act which of course joe biden likes to say he's the author of just reminding everyone if you didn't know uh andrew como bad and that is why i was the author of the violence against women act but Let's let's roll the clip of, of this vote because I... Thank you, Madam Speaker. I rise today in support of the Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act. And I want to thank my colleague from Houston, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, for her leadership and her tireless efforts to get this critical legislation to this House floor. The Violence Against Women Act provides essential support for survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. And its reauthorization now is vitally important, as many of my colleagues have shared. It's critical for organizations in my community that support survivors, like the Houston Area Women's Center, which has reported a dramatic rise in requests for their services through the coronavirus pandemic. More than 6,000 more calls responded to in 2020 alone. In 2020, the number of people the center sheltered tripled. Sadly, we've been reminded again today of the dangers that women face in our society. The Violence Against Women Act provides resources and services that are life-saving. That's why I'm proud to co-sponsor this legislation and to expired. vote in support of it today. I urge my colleagues the to do the same. Thank you, and I yield back. No procedural you, expert, um, but I just don't understand why some legislation has expiration dates and others don't. And and you know, back when this was originally signed in '94 uh, by Bill Clinton. They it went to the Supreme Court. Um, there was a provision in it that said that uh, accusers could sue their, um, you know, whether they're rape victims or domestic abuse victims. But uh, this, the court said that the federal government did not have the power uh, to make sure that women or victims um, are able to sue the people who violated their bodies and uh, hurt them in any way. So, you know, that's an aspect of this. But what I don't understand is like, what what is it about these types of bills that have to be renewed and reauthorized? And we just have to keep having the same conversations over and over again um, over things that, you know, in Because in men are getting better. <laughs> oh they? my God. <laughs> men are getting better. We had me too. <laughs> we did it. Yay. No, I, I don't know. I mean- you could you could apply this to the Supreme Court too. You're like I I truly don't understand why we relitigate it in the Supreme Court every five years, yeah. ten years. Um, just just amend the Constitution forever and ever and ever. That's what I want. Um, 
but I guess I just connecting this to our earlier conversation. Um, I do think that the Violence Against Women Act coming off the back of this this week of, you know, Asian American women being murdered uh, in massage parlors that may or may not perform sex work like it, it, that the fact that that group of folks and sex workers generally, as Jamie mentioned, are have been invisibilized. I mean, Asian women are already invisibilized. Workers are already invisibilized for so much of their work. You combine that and just like we need this act and we need way more and we need to stop with um, the like SESTA FOSTA BS around like, you know, lumping in sex work with trafficking, et cetera. Like we're just beyond that at this point. So um, I can't help but thinking the ways that sometimes these these prevention acts are so, they're so important, but they're also so narrow. So narrow, exactly. Well, that's what I'm saying is if, 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 if they has to be re-upped every decade um, yeah. or whatever the provision says, you never have these deeper, more complicated conversations at times when literally like this week, we needed to have that conversation and it needed to be like screamed from the floor of, of Congress. Jamie. Well, I'm actually glad that we're having a conversation about this again, um, especially amid the movement for abolition, because the original Violence Against Women Act was part of the 1994 crime bill, yes. which as we know, contributed to mass incarceration, particularly of oppressed communities, particularly working class black men. Yeah. Um, you know, I just watched the Woody Allen documentary on Oof. HBO. Turns out uh, different rules apply if you're a rich white guy. And I believe the answer to that disparity is not putting more white people in prison, but mm. abolishing prison for everyone and transforming the conditions that lead to this kind of harm in the first place. Um, I, I think it's very interesting that Joe Biden said, you know, he released a statement and he talked about how he championed the original Violence Against Women Act as part of this very carceral crime bill and said, I, even as I was told time and time again that domestic violence was a family issue that should be left to families to address in private. And what I say is those are not the only two choices. It's not right. just a choice between oh, it's a family issue in private. No one does anything about it. Oh, we, we do stuff about this by locking up poor black men, right? Like it is, in fact, a community issue and it can only really be dealt with effectively by community models of accountability that have been shown mm -hmm. to work, work much better than uh, the bourgeois justice system if the goal is actually to keep people safe. And as we know, the system we have now does a terrible job protecting people from gendered violence, particularly uh, trans women and sex workers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's an organization called Survived and Punished that was founded because a lot of victims of domestic abuse um, wind up being charged with a crime themselves after they report it. Yeah. What, um, what was the name of the organization? Survived and Punished. And they're based in New York? Um, I believe so. I'll go check it out. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's 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 really interesting because, like, in New York, there's some some statistics, but they're not, you know, incredibly accurate in New York in particular about how many women um, who stayed in, obviously, in domestic violence situations. The, the laws in New York are very strict in that, like, if a woman um, illustrates or anybody, I should say, illustrates that they might potentially be in in a situation of domestic violence, the police are forced to come and and deal with it, whether or not the the victim or supposed victim uh, actually asked for it. And what happens yeah. as a result is, you know, the person could get arrested, they could um, 
you know, the, the, the DA takes over the case and there is a for- get reported to ICE. Record, reported ICE, but also the victim now has to find housing. Mm-hmm. And so there's a situation in which, you know, if you are in a two income household or one income household or you have kids or, you know, think of all the millions of ways <laughs> your life has been disrupted. Um, and we don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's mind blowing to me that they didn't think that through in advance. And they see that so many women do stay in these situations because of the financial, being financially tethered to a partner um, and their children as well. So it's a housing uh, justice issue. It's, it's a, an issue of income inequality. I mean, we could go through this jobs, justice, everything. Amen yeah. to all that. I just love, I mean, it's hard because we're, I feel like we're in two worlds. I felt this for a while. We're like in the future and in the past. You know, we have these Republicans who vote against things like the Violence Against Women Act. Um, and you have like, again, white elitist bourgeois feminism that even Republican women buy into because they're wealthy enough to be able to afford a hotel if they're being brutalized by a partner or they're wealthy enough to go to their parents' house, whatever the situation may be. You know, they have the line of don't rely on the government. The government wants to make women, you know, like reliant on them, blah, blah, blah. blah. Meanwhile, I get everything from my dad. And and that's the past. And then the future is sort of like like what gives me hope, what Jamie lays out is like, yeah, really imagining. And especially when it comes to, you know, when people talk about how perpetrators of some of the anti-Asian violence were African-American. And, you know, we talk about, you know, situations of, of intimate violence or partner violence or, or child sexual abuse, right? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes we don't want to see and victims don't want to see the, their, you know, their brutalizers um, or their assaulters locked up forever. That's mm-hmm. not the solution. And yet when we have carceral solutions, when we have right. police solutions, that's what it becomes. And so, you know, organizations that work around this kind of stuff always are looking at transformative and restorative justice alternatives. But again, we're like still caught in this BS right wing paradigm too. Final thoughts, Jamie? Uh, I mean, sadly, it's not only a right wing paradigm. I think this has been taken up by a whole bunch of liberals as well. And, you know, talk about conflating uh, sex trafficking and sex work. We have people like Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore, like mainstream famous Hollywood liberals doing ads for these people who are pushing policies that only lead to sex workers dying. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, there are not two sides to this issue. It has been settled for a very long time. So uh, yeah, we really need to be, and and yes, there, there is a role the state can play. It can distribute resources to community groups that provide crucial services for people like food and shelter um, without being tied to the carceral state that is only going to hurt people and not help them and divide Mm -hmm. families up. Yeah. Survived and punished. There it is. Thanks, Dorsey. Appreciate that. All right, ladies. Thank you. Thanks for joining for Femme Friday. We love you. Jamie Pack, Francesca Fiorentini. Are you got anything to plug right now? Thanks for having me. Um, We're a quick quick an hour show. (laughs) I will have a new show to plug soon, but right now I've got my old show still. Patreon.com slash The Antifada. I'm very proud of the work we've been doing lately. And we've also been streaming like four nights a week, uh, twitch.tv slash the Antifada. So check that out too, if you want to actually see us while you're listening to us talk. Oh, yeah. Do you look at the camera when you're doing it or is it just like you're looking at like you're the Joe Rogan 
thing or whatever. Oh, it's you know, I use, yeah, it's just like me sitting in front of my laptop. So I look at the camera and then it's almost like I'm looking at everyone that I'm talking to and everyone watching. It's yeah, almost it's just, yeah. Yeah. it's a, right. it's a, it's a nice simulacrum of, uh, of, of human contact. Simulacrum. Simulacrum. I, I love those other shows up. where, <laughs> Right now. Dorsey, definitions. Yeah, put that on screen, please. <laughs> oh, and Francesca. he's asking what time we stream. Usually oh. at 7 p.m. Eastern. Sometimes we start a little later at like 8. Uh, you got to follow the Antifada Twitter account to see exactly when we have overcome our technical difficulties. That's exactly the situation. I did that last night on here and I was like, oh my God, this, I appreciate Dorsey so much. <laughs> Dorsey's Francesca, King. what are you... What are you uh, promoting uh, right now? Oh, uh, you know, just uh, the Bituation Room podcast every Sunday. We change it. We're, it's earlier now, 5, 8 Eastern, so that I have time to edit and get to bed. Um, and yeah, check that out. Listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And it's so good to be on with Jamie. Jamie, I've never actually Aww. been on a show with you, I don't think. Really? And oh. hello. And <laughs> I hope we I hope we connect more. Oh, so anyway, that's really okay. nice. It's good that. to be on with you too. <laughs> I love you guys too. Okay. <laughs> right. And then Nomiki, you know, thank you. Okay. Like a, thank you. It's the threesome where we see Nomiki out. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> it's Friday. I know. I, I'm so exhausted today. I got to tell you, like I, my brain is foggy. So I'm really glad that we had amazing guests because I'm moving at a snail's pace. My brain is not operating at the normal speed. So no worries. Wait, I thought we were going to talk about Matthew McConaughey. Oh, no, let's do it. Wait, one, do you want five? Let's do it. Okay, fine. I, I just... had one <laughs> terrible thing I was going to say about him. All right. Let's only one. That... Um, well, maybe more than one, but, but you're we're referring to Matthew time. McConaughey. Yeah. You're, he's running or he's thinking about running for governor, right? He's thinking Texas? about running for governor of Texas. No one knows what his politics are. <laughs> I just hope they're not all right. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, do not laugh at that. That was terrible. I love it. I love it because you did you it. You gotta do it. That <laughs> is actually, that's the perfect joke. Yeah. Well, thank you. Perfect. All right. On that note, we're out. Bye. <laughs> thank you, Francesca. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, everybody in the chat chiming in on a day where I felt like my brain was not moving um, at a normal pace. Appreciate. I, I didn't even brush my hair. Clearly, clearly, I was not on top of it today. All right. Lots of YouTube shout outs and, uh, and, and Twitch shout outs. Biped Snake, thank you for subscribing at the tier one on Twitch. Very appreciative. Uh, Pete from Oakland, do you know if the colonial territorial status of Guam and Samoa are comparable to that of, P of Puerto Rico? If uh, that's the temperature for Pacific, <clears throat> uh, okay, got it, for Pacific decolonization. Also, I'm the guy who finally signed up for the book club yesterday, thank you. Uh, one book per month because I'm a full-time undergrad student, oh wow, with a to-do, to-read list of 40 books high, oh my goodness. Happy Femme Friday, uh, much love. Great question. So there is a book uh, that I read in November called How to Hide an Empire. Let's just add that to the books as well. You make it 41. Uh, <laughs> How to Hide an Empire is, um, who was his name? Daniel, I forgot his last name, but you can find it. It's, it's a new book that came out. And they talk about how the American empires worked and everything from uh, Alaska, uh, colonial status with all these different um, territories and they guam is a really big piece of it uh 
there there's a part where they talk about yeah each each of each chapter has a different region um you know they're all comparable in that they're all they've all been colonized but i think puerto rico in particular is you know in this situation, they have such a large population um, on the mainland, I think 2 million plus Puerto Ricans, and they're so integrated in, in our uh, government. I mean, there are similarities, but then there are also like, I mean, they, horrifying things have happened in all of these territories. They were testing, uh, experimenting on, on citizens of Puerto Rico. Uh, on the island over the last hundred years, uh, whether it's pharmaceuticals or doctors, basically forcing sterilizations because they're just racist and they did not want people to reproduce. Um, so there's there's been a lot of they killed like literally killed the independence movement of Puerto Rico. So the history and what this means and signifies, um, I think that's where the difference probably lies. But I definitely recommend reading the book. It's such a great read, such a great read. Okay, Ken M. Uh, Thank you for the love. Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. Tomorrow is the start of spring with Equinox. Uh, we made it through the darkest winter in living memory. Wow. As the world recovers, remember those who didn't care about others and lives they cut short, including Donald Trump and the response to this horrible, horrible, horrible pandemic. All right. Marty Hunt uh, sends his love. Thank you very much. And anonymous gifter. I love that. Irish Mang. And I talk, wait, I talk it. I talk at teacher. I talk at teacher. I think that's what it says. I talk at teacher on Twitch. Thanks for subscribing. All right, everybody. Oh, we have a few more. Just kidding. Uh, Daniel Castle. Daniel Castle says, call Lance, go on surfs, please. You know what? I didn't see an email. And so I have to respond to him. That's on my list of things to do today. Uh, I'm just sharing everything with you today. <laughs> Open book. On my to-do list is to call Lance from the surfs. We're going to set up a time. I will definitely be there. All right. Everybody else, Professor Harvey K., thank you so much uh, for always mixing it up in the chats. He was on yesterday. If you missed his interview, go back and watch. It was so good. Uh, Midi Docs and Mario, thank you for working the, the algorithms as usual. And our moderators, Bob C. Choke, uh, Choken, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel. We love you. And of course, over at Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nightbot, Our Means, Nug Wrangler. Really grateful to you for keeping the chat room troll free, the chats troll free. I told you, I'm like, half, my brain's not working. Chat room. We're not in chat rooms. We're not in like an AOL chat room. <laughs> All right. Thank you to everyone. Have a wonderful weekend. I'm going to get some sleep. Um, Dorsey should too, because he didn't sleep well either. So maybe it's like the moon or something keeping us up, but I'm going to go get some sleep and hopefully I'll be well rested for Tuesday right here at 3 p.m. Eastern. Stay in solidarity. Mm -hmm.